Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 28, Deuteronomy chapter 22. Well, as we open up our Bibles tonight to Deuteronomy chapter 22, you know, I recall thinking as I was preparing this lesson, how am I ever going to find the words to explain the profound and far-reaching impact of these commandments of God here to modern-day believers. This is one of these places in the Bible that's akin to a major highway intersection because so much comes together here. we spent now going on four years since we started the book of Genesis to get to this point in Torah. A long road has been traveled. Much understanding has been developed. And perhaps now we can talk about some of the more challenging underlying concepts that kind of spread out and engulf sections of the Torah that we've already studied. So we're going to be a couple of weeks in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 22. Now my challenge in teaching Torah has always been how many layers of the onion to peel back at any given moment before enough's enough and it's time to move on. This chapter especially so. But in the study of this chapter we also have another challenge. How to deal with the contents of this part of Moses' sermon in a way that isn't so offensive to our Western sensibilities that our ears are simply closed to it. Because at the molten core of this chapter, and much more of the Bible than you might ever think, is the matter of human sexuality. Okay. The, The Gentile translators of the Old Testament as we read it today Well, they were refined urban Europeans. And they brought with them the reserved and and puritanical European Christian mindset, as well as a not-so-hidden disdain for all things Jewish. Therefore, so much of the sexual content that's actually inherent in God's Word is, is greatly masked, and we miss it. Now, in our day... In the West especially, the handling of sex resides, for the most part, at two ends of a spectrum. And there's very little middle ground. It's either dealt with in a very sterile and purely pragmatic scientific medical way, or something so intensely sensitive and private and therefore pretty uncomfortable, that most good Christians just want to work their way around the subject and get out of it as soon as possible. It's like tithing. Talk about it once a year and get it over with. (laughs) Lately, of course, we've seen the progressive secular movement to normalize that which is historically and biblically been viewed as deviant and aberrant sexual practices. Now, the biblical reality is that the ancient 
cultures viewed sexuality quite differently than we do. It was just a part of everyday life and not hidden away. Uh, And because having large families was critical to the survival of the clan and the tribe, everything that surrounded human reproduction was an open and public subject that, that, that children began to understand at the earliest age because virtually every Hebrew family lived quite literally among domesticated farm animals. Because of that, the function of sex was constantly visible and understood, and people weren't squeamish about it at all. Now, don't get me wrong. People of that era were generally far more modest about their personal sexuality in public than we are today. On the other hand, particularly as concerned large families living in one-room huts, all right, or as nomads living crammed together in cloth and animal skin tents, privacy was at a premium. All right, and rarely was complete privacy possible. Now, human sexuality and its role in Hebrew society was therefore kind of woven into their language and their culture. It pervades the Old Testament from beginning to end and is often used to present much larger spiritual pictures and principles. But at the same time, it's largely hidden from our view in the scriptures due to both these idiomatic expressions we read that are actually about sex, we just don't recognize them as such, and the rather blatant attempt by these European Bible translators to hide it all together because they found it offensive to them. Now please understand that what we're going to be studying has nothing to do with sex education as has come to be known in our public school system. Rather, this is going to have to do with God's creation of mankind and the holy and sacred nature of God's defined roles for males and females. It also has to do with certain duties that one sex has to the other. The concept of lawful and unlawful unions and how the underlying principles of human sexuality play out in both a physical and a spiritual way in a much wider context than we typically think about it or even recognize. So let's open up our Bibles and our minds to God's mind and his purposes for ordering human life as he did. All right. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 22. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 221. Deuteronomy chapter 22. You are not to watch your brother's ox or sheep straying and behave as if you hadn't seen it. You must bring them back to your brother. If your brother's not close by or you don't know who the owner is, you are to bring it home to your house. It will remain with you until your brother asks for it. Then you are to give it back to him. You are to do the same with his donkey, his coat, anything else of your brother's that he loses. If you find something he lost, you can't ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or ox collapsed on the road, you may not behave as if you hadn't seen it. You must help him get them up on their feet again. A woman is not to wear men's clothing. A man is not to put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is detestable to Adonai your God. 
If as you are walking along you happen to see a bird's nest in a tree or on the ground with chicks or eggs and the mother bird is sitting on the chicks or the eggs, you are not to take the mother with the chicks. You must let the mother go. But you may take the chicks for yourself so that things will go well with you and will, and you will prolong your life. When you build a new house, you must build a low wall around your roof. Otherwise, someone may fall from it and you'll be responsible for his death. You're not to sow two kinds of seed between your rows of vines. If you do, both the two harvested crops and the yield from the vines must be forfeited. You're not to plow with an ox and a donkey together. You're not to wear clothing woven with two kinds of thread, wool and linen, together. You're to make for yourself twisted cords on the four corners of the garment you wrap around yourself. If a man marries a woman, has sexual relations with her, and then, having come to dislike her, brings false charges against her and defames her character by saying, I married this woman, but when I had intercourse with her, I didn't find evidence that she was a virgin. Then the girl's father and mother are to take the evidence of the girl's virginity to the leaders of the town at the gate. The girl's father will say to the leaders, I let my daughter marry this man, but he hates her. So he has brought false charges. They didn't find evidence of her virginity. Yet here is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they will lay the cloth before the town leaders. The leaders of that town are to take the man and punish him and find him two and a half pounds of silver shekels, which they will give to the girl's father, because he has publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. She will remain his wife, and he is forbidden from divorcing her as long as he lives. But if the charge is substantiated that evidence for the girl's virginity could not be found, then they are to lead the girl to the door of her father's house, and the men of the town will stone her to death, because she has committed in Israel the disgraceful act of being a prostitute while still in her father's house. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you. If a man is found sleeping with a woman who has a husband, both of them must die, the man who went to bed with the woman and the woman too. In this way, you will expel such wickedness from Israel. If a girl who is a virgin is engaged to a man and another man comes upon her in the town and has sexual relations with her, you're to bring them both out to the gate of the city and stone them to death. The girl, because she didn't cry out for help there in the city, and the man, because he has humiliated his neighbor's wife. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you. But if the man comes upon the engaged girl out in the countryside and the man grabs her and has sexual relations with her, then, the only, then only the man who had intercourse with her is to die. You will do nothing to the girl, because she has done nothing deserving of death. The situation is like the case of the man who attacks his neighbor and kills him. For he found her in the countryside, and the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. If a man comes upon a girl who is a virgin, but who is not engaged, and he grabs her and has relations with her, and they are caught in the act, then the man who had intercourse with her must give to the girl's father one and a quarter pounds of silver shekels, and she will become his wife, because he humiliated her. He may not divorce her as long as he lives. These first five verses of Deuteronomy 22 present us with something that James, the brother of Jesus, had a lot to say about. True religion. He began by saying that true religion is best illustrated in taking care of widows and orphans. In Hebrew society, widows and orphans represented the socially disadvantaged of that era. 
those who were the weakest and the most vulnerable. Further, practicing true religion kept one unstained from the ways of the world. Now James and Paul and Yeshua explained, you see, the true religion is not about mechanical obedience to laws, but rather it is the spirit one adopts when following those laws that matters. It is obedience to those laws accomplished within the context of love and trust of the lawgiver that produces the kind of righteousness the Ehove seeks from his worshipers. You know, we have a legal saying in America whereby we say that we, we always run the risk of separating the letter of the law from the spirit of the law, if we're not careful. When one seeks justice according to the letter, but without the required spirit, then love and mercy and justice can be lost. If that is true in our man-made justice system, it's far more so in the God-ordained Torah system of law. Therefore, especially as regards these first five verses of Deuteronomy 22, the instructions all revolve around the attitude of the worshiper. Here we don't see the typical formula of of the laws of, of criminality that we've been more used to seeing in the Torah. We don't see, if you do this, then this is what's going to happen to you. And then we don't see that in order to return to peace with God, we have to uh, atone by means of some kind of a sacrifice. Instead, these particular laws are done in the spirit of what Messiah says is the basis for all the Torah commands and and laws. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbor, you see, is not a rule or a regulation. It's not a law that has a direct consequence for its violation. Love your neighbor is a call to everyone who loves Jehovah, their God, to have a holy mindset. It's a reminder that striving for holiness is the goal of the law. And that this kind of holiness is expressed on earth in this age of human history by loving your neighbor as yourself. The first illustration of how to love your neighbor as yourself in a practical application that we find here in Deuteronomy 22 is what happens if your brother's ox or sheep goes astray and you just happen to stumble across those animals. Notice the use of the term brother in describing whom it is that is being defined as one's neighbor. In Hebrew, the word is ach, and it is technically referring to a kinsman. In the sense as it's meant here, it means a member of your clan or maybe your tribe. In a, in a broader sense, perhaps a member of your nation, which in this case, of course, is Israel. Later on, Yeshua went on to explain that in the Lord's eyes, your brother extends to anyone in need. 
and use the example of the Good Samaritan to demonstrate his point. However, in the strictest sense, this particular passage could easily read, you're not to watch a fellow Israelite's ox or sheep straying. That's the sense of it here. And the Lord says that when you witness a brother's domestic animal straying, you do not have the option of inaction. One cannot turn his back on what he knows is a circumstance that demands his active help, though this help may not even be of personal benefit. Now, the concept is that indifference to the need of another human being, especially your, your ach, your brother, is just unacceptable to Yehovah. Okay? Indifference to the need of another is the opposite of love your neighbor. This law is actually first given way back in Exodus 23, where it says if you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey straying, you must return it to him. So these verses of Deuteronomy 22 elaborate on the basic law of Exodus 23. Now recall I've mentioned to you on numerous occasions that the book of Deuteronomy is actually a sermon by Moses. And this sermon is a predecessor and a pattern that Yeshua would follow in his own Sermon on the Mount. This sermon of Moses is generally in the form of taking a basic law from Exodus and then expounding upon it and then often adding life applications as examples of how the Israelites should apply this law to their lives. Now therefore in verse 2 is the complicating situation of what to do if your brother, Yerach, is nowhere around to claim that stray animal. Or maybe he doesn't live close by. Or maybe you have no idea who owns the beast. Indifference still isn't an option. Nor is it acceptable to go by the philosophy that we've all learned since we were children. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. We don't get to do that. Rather, we have to capture the animal, take it home, care for it, wait for the owner to claim it, and give it back to him. Interestingly, this phrase about bringing the animal home literally instructs, bring it inside your house. And that is exactly what is meant. Because in that era, and in many parts of the Middle East to this very day, by the way, a person's house was usually built around an outdoor courtyard. Or the home was two levels. Animals and humans together inhabited the first floor and the courtyard. Animals were so valuable all right, that um, they needed to be protected from predators and thieves and inclement weather just as much as the human family members did. Moses, who was a leader of three million people, must have learned to be quite the psychologist during his 40 years as their leader because he knew that this was just not enough information and that the search for loopholes would begin immediately with this law. 
So he goes on to explain that this attitude concerning find, uh, finding someone, someone's lost property isn't limited to only finding ox or sheep. It goes. It pertains to a donkey, a coat, anything for that matter that belongs to somebody else. Now please notice something that, that is emphasized here. We've touched on a number of times in Torah class. Loving your neighbor isn't having an emotional concern or a warm feeling towards them. It's jumping in to actively help your neighbor in time of need. That is loving your neighbor. Next in verse 4 is a regulation that's related to the one before it. If you see your brother's beast of burden collapse under the weight of its load, you're to assist the animal. See, the previous regulations about the concern for the well-being of your brother. This one is about the concern for the well-being of your brother's animal. In neither case is ignoring the situation the proper attitude of a worshiper of the God of Israel. The next law in verse 5 is one that's caused a lot of debate. Some of the debate is, frankly, a lot of hollow academic nonsense. And others of it really helps bring a lot of clarity to what's, what's talked about here. The words explain that a man is not to wear things that a woman normally would and vice versa. Now most translations make this about referring to clothing. In fact, the more accurate translation doesn't say clothing. What it says is things pertaining to being a man or being a woman. Therefore, particularly in regards to that era, the things pertaining to could mean weapons of war, it could mean jewelry, could mean hairstyles, of course it could mean clothing. For sure, transvestism is at the center of this. Now, for those of you that may have led more sheltered lives than others, in our day, a transvestite is a person who wears the clothing of the opposite sex. Men wearing women's clothes, women wearing men's clothes. But but that's only how we see it today. More correctly, it's referring to a person of one sex taking on the characteristics of of the opposite sex, whether it's appearance or roles or clothing. This is not talking about sex change operations. It's all about confusion. It's all about deception. It's about pretending to be or identifying yourself as the sex you're not. Now, the hollow academic nonsense I spoke about centers about a raging debate among theologians over why God doesn't want one sex pretending to be the other. The reality is that the underlying reason for even having this debate is that progressive and liberal scholars would like to say that God no longer sees these sorts of deviant behaviors that the Bible says are aberrant before the Lord as still valid in our time. Okay. Just as it has become prevalent in the church 
that homosexuality should no longer be seen as a sin. So these particular scholars want to say such behavior as transvestism was strictly confined to a certain era among people of a certain culture, and besides, Christ's new law of love means that of any behavior that is personal and doesn't harm anybody else is now okay in the Lord's eyes. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Or that the comment that was made by St. Paul in Galatians 3, that under Yeshua there is no male and no female, means that God's voided the whole concept of sexuality. Now let me assure you that that comment I just read to you in Galatians simply meant that the spiritual status of a human before the Lord, whether the person was acceptable or not acceptable to God, depended on his or her relationship with the Messiah, not whether that person was a male or a female. On the other side of the coin, it is interesting to see from a practical point of view where this idea first played a role in ancient societies. We have historical records that among the Mesopotamian cultures, it was customary for a male priest of some god or another to don female garments or to wear expressly female jewelry or even to be painted up using female cosmetics when the deity he was worshipping was a goddess. The idea, the philosophy behind it was to disguise himself as a female so that he could better identify with the feminine attributes of the female god. Now another well-attested circumstance in ancient times was of men who would dress like women and hide in plain sight in hopes they wouldn't get drafted into the military. I think that one's still going on. (laughs) Conversely, we had women who cut their hair short, wore men's clothing and armor, utilized man-sized weapons in hopes they'd be taken for a man so they could go off and fight in battles. Now, I have no doubt that this law of verse 5 covers these sorts of things and might even have been used quite often to directly counter men and women who, who, who attempted them. But you know, the real purpose was more broad and deep than simply these examples that I gave you. And some of that's pretty clear when we see the context of the laws that surround this one in Deuteronomy 22. Once again, this law against transvestism is speaking to an attitude, to a condition of the heart. It speaks to the spirit of obeying God's laws and staying true to the way he ordered this universe. Here, at least partly, it speaks to deception and confusion that's always bad in the Lord's economy. It also speaks of homosexuality that's also a matter of attitude and of moral choice. And we're going to look at another aspect of this outlawed sexual behavior later on. Well, these laws of true religion, which refers to the worshiper operating within the spirit of the law, 
It continues now. With the admonition of Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, that prohibits the capture of a mother bird along with her chicks. Now, there's two main points to this law. The first is, you see, that it extends this humanitarian security blanket of concern for domestic animals that we saw with the regulation requiring assistance for the ox or the donkey that fell down under the heavy load. Okay. It extends this over to even wild animals, in this case a bird. Okay. And part of the reason that this needs to be stated is, you see, is that a wild bird had little to no value compared to the sizable economic value of, say, a, a sheep or a donkey or an ox. So the Lord is demonstrating that the principle of humanitarianism it extends to all of God's creatures. And their economic value is to be held as totally secondary. Even more, just as James says that true religion is demonstrated in caring for the most vulnerable, least valuable of human society, this same principle applies to the most vulnerable and least valuable of the animal kingdom as well. Now the second point is that the reverence to the parent-child relationship doesn't begin and end with humans. Okay. Rabbis often use this explanation as the reason for this strange law that we read back in Deuteronomy 14.2 that says that a kid, a baby goat, wasn't to be boiled in its mother's milk. Well, we've argued about that one for centuries. Okay. Now, we can be sure of the link between the, the, the mother bird and her chicks and humans and, and, and our children because the author of Deuteronomy structured his narrative in a way that connects the two in a very familiar form. Recall the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment that reads in Exodus 20.12, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land which Adonai your God is giving you. Here in Deuteronomy 27, 22.7 it says, You must let the mother go, but you may take the chicks for yourself, so that things will go well with you, and you'll prolong your life. The same kind of formula. There's a benefit to you, a blessing to you. It's essentially the same thought in basically the same language as the fifth commandment, that by showing proper respect to the value of the parent and, and their relationship with their offspring, sparing the life of the mother bird in this case, you will live along and things will go well with you. In other words, you will experience God's shalom as a blessing. Now the subject of an Israelite's requirement to be humanitarian in attitude and action now takes on another light in this requirement to build what's called a parapet. Um, around the roof of one's home. Now obviously this is looking forward to the time that was actually just a few months away from Moses' sermon here in Deuteronomy 
when Joshua would lead Israel to conquer Canaan, the Israelites would finally put away their tents and begin living in permanent housing. Now, a parapet is essentially a balcony railing. And it usually goes around at least two sides, sometimes all four, uh, around the edge of the roof of a home. Its purpose, of course, was as so somebody didn't accidentally fall off. Now, the typical Middle Eastern house was built using a flat roof. And the roof was essentially just another living area of the house to be utilized like the ones below it. Stairs or ladders were built going up to it so that the roof was always accessible. On the roof, drying and storing produce and fish would occur, as would socializing on a pleasant day or maybe even sleeping during the furnace-like summer months. Therefore, it was only common sense that a fence was built around the roof's edges so that a person wouldn't fall and be seriously injured or even killed. This thought is verified because at the end of verse 8, it declares that the spiritual reason that this precaution is necessary is that the danger was sufficient enough that not to build that parapet constituted criminal negligence. In other words, one could reasonably expect that eventually somebody was going to fall off of that unprotected roof. And death as a result of such wanton disregard for the welfare of others would bring blood guilt upon that home's owner, the family that lived there, the whole community whose government didn't enforce this law. And by now, you should all understand the serious spiritual and physical consequences of blood guilt. The responsible party is required to forfeit his life. A person who built a house without a guardrail on the roof would be guilty of negligent homicide if somebody died as a result. This was viewed as an unjust death. And the life of the responsible party would have to be taken as required payment. Well, this ends... What's actually the rather easy and straightforward part of Deuteronomy 22. From here on, it's going to get complicated. And not just a little bit dicey. Now the next few verses give us three laws on what is commonly called illicit mixtures. We've already been given one illicit mixture, but it was spoken of in a little different context. Transvestism. Illicit means not authorized, not approved by God. It's a gross misuse of something. Okay? So the idea of these three listed forbidden mixtures we're going to be discussing, plus the one concerning transvestites, is that these are combinations of things that create unions that must never be permitted. These various unions fly in the face of God's order of creation and are therefore a severe form of rebellion. It's not just the action that's the issue. 
See, it's the blasphemous attitude of the violator that's the crux of the matter. Okay. The first of this group is found in verse 9. It is that a farmer is not to sow two kinds of seeds in the area of soil that's located between the rows of, of, of grapevines in his vineyard. The second is in verse 10. An ox and a donkey are not to be yoked together to pull a plow. This is one we've heard before. And the third one is verse 11. One's not to wear clothing made of two distinct kinds of thread that have been woven together, wool and linen. We've heard this one too. See, these three laws are repeats. And they're extensions that are taken from Leviticus 19.19, where it says, observe my regulations. Don't let your livestock meet with those of another kind. Don't Don't sow your field with two different kinds of grain. Don't wear a garment made of cloth with two different kinds of thread. So any kind of mixture or union that is against God's law is called kilayim in Hebrew, which literally translates to more than one kind. So seriously did the Hebrews regard violations of this particular class of laws that they actually dedicated an entire tractate in the Talmud to it, and its name appropriately is Kilayim. Yet as serious a matter as they knew this to be, just why God prohibited cross-dressing, two kinds of seeds being planted together, wearing a garment made of two different kinds of material, and a donkey and an ox being yoked to the same plow. This was a mystery to even the greatest rabbis. Rashi explains that these laws are simply sovereign decrees of God for which no reason need be given. That's it. And while I understand Rashi's great humility in this matter and declining to delve into the why of these laws, I think we might actually be able to add some grist to the mill. So, take a moment, clear your heads, and I want you to get ready to see some amazing connections now start to grow before your eyes. To begin with, each of these four laws on illicit mixtures are actually associated with the seventh commandment. Okay? The law against adultery. And that might seem odd to you. But pretty soon I think you're going to see it can't be anything else. Okay? Let me say it again. All of these laws on unauthorized mixtures actually are representing several aspects of adultery. Now, notice that from a purely practical, rational standpoint, none of these laws of mixtures causes serious harm to anyone or anything. And in fact, there can actually be great benefit, in a physical sense, from doing some of these things that are actually prohibited. For instance, it's long been known and practiced that planting two different types of seeds, plants, crops, together can bring all kinds of good results. This is called intercropping. And it's been employed especially in areas 
where farming is, is, is of the more primitive kind. Okay? Sometimes one kind of plant attracts a, a type of insect that can be beneficial to both kinds of plants, like for pollination perhaps. In another instance, one kind of plant produces a needed nutrient that, that the other one takes out of the soil and depletes it. Okay? On another level, one can make maximum use of arable land by planting two types of crops in the same space that are, that are symbiotic. And, and so they provide maximum food production using a minimum amount of land. It can even protect against crop failure by growing two different kinds of plants that are each susceptible, susceptible to different kinds of hazards. Well, the case of Deuteronomy 22.9 of not planting a crop of a different kind among the vineyards is such that grapevines, you see, are planted in rows that are spaced well apart so that they can thrive. So what good purpose could possibly be served to let the significant amount of ground in between these two rows go to waste? I mean, goodness, if the precious water that is used to water those vines can, can be doubly used to water vegetables or grain that grows on the ground underneath those vines, isn't that a man being a good shepherd? over limited environmental resources. It's also a reality that weaving fine linen and wool together produces a very high quality cloth of beauty, has great durability. So why is that bad in God's eyes? It was nearly impossible in the minds of the ancient Hebrew sages to find any earthly fault or inherent evil in wearing such a material. Yet, there sits that law prohibiting it. And it can't be seen as a mistake or misinterpretation. It's just utterly explicit and straightforward. Therefore, the prohibition was strictly mandated, strictly observed by the most pious Jews and Hebrews right on up to today. If you buy a wool coat, you have to have it certified. You have to take it to a person who has been certified to inspect it from top to bottom to make sure there isn't a thread of any other kind in that garment or it's not kosher. And it costs good money. Is there really harm in yoking an ox and a donkey to a plow? No. Despite all the efforts of teachers and preachers to explain that the plow will, uh, you know, like always be turning in one direction of the weaker animal, or that the stronger animal would somehow harm the weaker one, or that it would be terribly inefficient in real life, this just really isn't so. In fact, such a thing as having two different kinds of animals pull a plow or a wagon together was totally common in the ancient world because a man was considered quite fortunate if he ordered if he owned one ox and one donkey very fortunate an ox was better at pulling something than carrying it but it could carry things a donkey was better designed to carry things than to pull things but it could do either one when a plow needed the horsepower that it took two animals to provide the ancients saw nothing wrong 
with those two animals being a donkey and an ox working together, and from an earthly sense, there was no lasting harm that came to either of those beasts of burden just because they weren't exactly equal in strength. Well, I give great credit to the rabbis, who at least have been much more forthcoming about their lack of understanding of why these laws, rather than creating the great allegorical explanations that have pervaded Christianity, and tend to lead us down highly questionable paths. Okay. At the same time, though, it's always been the tendency of the rabbis to see the earthly physical side of God's laws and prophecies rather than their heavenly spiritual side. Let's see if we can look at this, maybe from a little bit different angle. Suffice it to say, that it's obvious that these laws of illicit mixture cannot have been ordained by God in order that by avoiding doing these things, animals, plants, or men would benefit from a strictly physical standpoint. It's not about the physical standpoint. It's equally obvious that there's nothing inherently evil by planting two different kinds of seeds in close proximity. Wickedness doesn't spontaneously erupt when linen thread is mixed with wool thread. And it's not devilishly inhumane to attach a donkey donkey and an ox to the same plow yoke. Now this reality shouldn't surprise us. I've discussed with you that every attempt by biblical scholars to explain why certain animals were designated by God as ritually clean, while others were designated as ritually unclean, have they've all become frustrated by this. Every time they think they come up with a rational or a scientific system for it, something else in the scriptures shoots it all down. Why are certain foods, foods kosher and others aren't? Why is it okay to sacrifice a a goat, but not a pig? Why can a bull be offered to God, but but not a camel? What about not having a cloven hoof or not chewing a cud makes that animal unsuitable for purposes of holiness? As Rashi says about the four laws of illicit mixture, God is sovereign. He decreed it. And it's not necessary that we know why in order for us to observe these laws. In fact, I maintain that the search for why in the Bible is a boondoggle of major proportions on most accounts. The issuer for followers of God ought not to be why but rather which. Which pattern, which law of God should be applied to any given circumstance? That's what ought to matter. Not why God ordained the law. Not what his rationale was behind it. I further maintain that like the kosher food laws and the laws of animals deemed suitable for sacrifice, these laws of illicit mixture illustrate in a physical, visible way some immutable 
spiritual principles. It's the illustration and what's learned from them that's the point. It's not that the actions or the materials or the creatures themselves, that they're the, the principle. Okay? It's what they demonstrate that's the principle. So next week, we're going to continue by looking at some connections in the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, that intertwine illicit mixtures, sexuality, adultery, and starts to open up the spiritual reasons as to why these things are seen as aberrant in God's eyes. Okay, we'll do that next week. Okay, sit for the night.